All right, we're in Proverbs chapter 11. section uh, we mentioned last week as we began on it has to do with the matter of wealth and riches and it's one of those unusual sections in this part of the book of Proverbs where it strings together a group of Proverbs that deal with a with a single subject and the single subject that is dealt with has to do with the matter of wealth and riches and um, this sort of thing. Again, let's begin at verse 23, and let me read the section. It's a little long, but I think it's worthwhile to read it and uh, probably do this again several more times before we're through it, but I think it's good to, to see the, the link up and the continuity that is in this text of Scripture. Verse 23 begins, the desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. There is one who scatters, yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, but it results only in want. A generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. He who withholds grain, the people will curse him. But blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. He who diligently seeks good, uh, good seeks favor. But he who searches evil, it will come to him. He who trusts in his, in his riches will fall. But the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. He who troubles his own house will inherit wind. The foolish will be the servant to the wise-hearted. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is why, or he who is wise wins souls. If the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner. Now, some of that, of course, only lightly touches on the matter of, of finances, but uh, each of the Proverbs has at least something that talks about the matter of wealth and riches and finances and the importance of laying up treasure in heaven. Paul wrote to the Colossian church, he said, set your affection on things above, not on things in the earth. Set your affection on things above, not on things in the earth. The Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 6 tells us that where, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The focus of one's life is going to, is going to make him a, uh, uh, going to make him or break him, really. I was thinking uh, this morning, in fact, one of the reasons I walked in a few seconds late was because I was, I was looking in my concordance trying to put my finger on it. But there's a text in either Isaiah or Jeremiah uh, where it's talking about idolatry. And it says that those that make the idols... It's explaining that the idols have ears, but they can't hear. They've got eyes they can't see. Uh, they're dumb idols. But he that makes them shall be like 
onto them. When you make an idol, when something becomes an idol in your life, when you begin to focus your attention upon something and worship something, you, you become like what you worship. Whatever you attach worth to, whatever you say is vital and important, you will become like that thing. And so as a result, there are a lot of people who, who, who fashion themselves in a materialistic mode. And uh, it's just simply because they don't have a correct focus on the matter of riches. God, uh, in his word, if you start uh, clear back in the book of Genesis where you deal with a man like Abraham as an example, you'll find that God never uh, is upset when somebody is rich if the man has a proper perspective. But when a man has a wrong perspective and is rich, there's verse after verse, passage after passage that condemns such a man. So much so that if you just took those verses and plucked them out of the text, you could make quite a case for people not being rich, for never being rich. Riches can be bad. Now, some people say money is the root of all evil. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And uh, yet, a lot of times, uh, there are those that go one extreme and say that making money is wrong, you should never have any money, you should give it all away to the poor, that sort of thing. Scripture doesn't teach that. But on the other hand, there are so many verses that condemn the rich because of the way their focus is that it makes one get the impression that being wealthy, being rich, is always wrong. So you have to keep balance. But this text of Scripture talks a lot about, about riches and wealth and focus and all of those things. And so it's going to become a theme here for a little while while we're moving through these verses. Now in Proverbs 11:23, the concept is that of desire and fulfillment. And the principle is we often get what we set our hearts on. But we have to remember that the ultimate determiner of what a man gets is a sovereign God. And that sovereign God gives you sometimes what you desire, but not in the form you expect. It's very important in the book of in the book of uh, Psalms, Psalm 78, it talks about the nation of Israel getting what they desired, but God sent leanness to their heart. We have to be careful what we desire. So we begin with an antithetical distich to contrast the wicked and the righteous. First of all, the desire. Now the word desire is the word ta'ava. Ta'ava is a longing, or by implication, that which satisfies, or at least that which one believes will satisfy. Actually, the root is this part of the word here. The other is just simply a a prefix, ava is the word for wish, to wish. And so the idea is that 
It's related to a wish. It's the longing, the, the, that which delights one. Subject of the root word ava is often the soul to, del to, to, to wish for in your soul or uh, yourself or uh, related to the appetite. It's used both in a positive and a negative sense. Uh, the object of ava is often uh, meat or food or fruit. Uh, or in a negative sense, uh, the desire for evil. Uh, Proverbs chapter 21. Proverbs 21 and verse um, 10. The soul of the wicked desires evil. It's the soul, the mind, the emotions, the will of an individual desires evil. And his, favor, his neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. Sometimes it's without an object. Like in Proverbs 21, verse 26, it says, All day long, the sluggard it's talking of here, all day long he is craving. Well, now, what's he craving? It doesn't tell us. It doesn't have a subject. Uh, but uh, likely it's, uh, it's food or maybe wealth or riches or satisfaction in some way. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and verse 2. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. Again, there's no object there. But uh, this is a fascinating verse because it says the man, God is allowed him to have riches and wealth and honor and he every thing he would ever want is satisfied, but notice, but God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and severe affliction. Here was a, a man who was one of the wealthiest men of his time writing these words, and you can imagine, see this guy, this guy's got all this money. He sits down at this huge banquet, pheasant under glass, you know, caviar, uh, what else is rich food? I'm not sure I can come up with the right words. I mean, it is a sumptuous meal. And he sits down, and all these guests are eating, and he, the rich man, has ulcers. And he can't eat. And he's sipping his warm milk and looking at all of this, and then all, after it's all done, all that's left over, the servants eat. And he thinks to himself, here, I'm the rich guy. And all these people are my guests. And they can eat, and I can't eat because I got ulcers. All right? He can't enjoy the thing that he has. All of the wealth in the world can't buy health. And the result is that he is satisfied in one way. But in the way that he wants to be satisfied for the moment more than any other, he is unable to be satisfied. Sometimes it, uh, it talks about a gluttonous craving. Over in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter um, 11, it's talking there about our story of the quail. 11.4, murmuring of the people. It says in verse 4, the, the rabble, who were among them. Those were the mixed multitude, the King James says. And there was a group of people that came out of Egypt that were not really 
followers of the Lord. There's a, most every church has a mixed multitude, you know. There's always people within any fellowship that are not really followers of the Lord. Why they come, why they involve themselves, it's hard to say. Each one may have a different motive. Uh, maybe, it, maybe with some of them it was a spirit of adventure. Uh, maybe with some of them it was a, a desire to uh, uh, just to see what was going to happen, curiosity. Uh, with some of them it might have been that they thought that, that since they'd seen the power of God that somehow like uh, uh, Simon the sorcerer they might be able to tap into that power somehow. And uh, so they went along for the ride hoping that there would be something ahead of them. But uh, the people of Israel were largely stirred up, not by those that were sincere, but by this mixed multitude of people. People that from the beginning were not sincere. And they often caused a problem. They were the ones that were the source of the murmuring a great many times. Uh, people truly committed to God sometimes are, are led astray into an attitude of murmuring simply because of a mixed multitude. And the, the peer pressure is enormous. We talk about peer pressure with young people. Uh, young people don't know anything about peer pressure. The peer, real peer pressure is out in the real world. There's plenty of peer pressure. And it comes in many, many forms. And the, the, the person committed to God needs to, to maintain that commitment and not get caught up in the attitudes of a mixed multitude. Just because people profess to be Christians doesn't mean that they're sold out to the Lord. Doesn't mean that they're godlike. Doesn't mean that they that they they have their act together and their focus correct. You have to be very very wise and very very careful. And listen to what they say and and uh, and pay attention to what God says. And if it doesn't agree, then don't pay any attention to them. But anyway, the mixed multitude were the ones that caused a great deal of problem among the people of Israel. And in this instance, they were the leaders of the of the of the whole. Uh, matter, the rabble who were among them, the mixed multitude, had greedy desires. It's the mark, it's the mark of a, of a wicked man when you have greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? They, they, they joined forces. There was already discontent in the heart of the, of the Israelites. The mixed multitude were greedy of, of having something else. And they prayed for quail, and boy, did they get it. They got plenty. God granted their, their request, but sent leanness to their soul. And we have to be very, very careful of the, of the kind of, of um, people that we're with and the kind of attitude that we develop. You've heard me mention this before, but let me just mention it again, that in the third chapter of the book of Philippians, there are three vital questions that arise and are answered both positively and negatively. The first question is, who do you worship? Who do you worship? Second question is, what gets you excited? What brings you joy? The third is, where is your focus? 
Now, the Apostle Paul talks there about a group of people that were actually the Judaizers, the false teachers, and uh, he, in the later part, latter part of the chapter, um, really answers these three questions in reference to them. And the first one is this, the Phillips translation translates the verse, who worship what they want, who worship what they desire, whose God, King James says, whose God is their belly. They worship what they desire. Secondly, what gets you excited? It says they glory in the things they should be ashamed of. The things they ought to be ashamed of. That's the thing they, they get excited about. They glory in their shame, King James says. And the third one is, this world is the limit of their horizon. This world is the limit of their horizon. That's the Phillips translation. Who mind earthly things is the way the King James translates it. Now, the Apostle Paul also, though, in the first part of the chapter, tells what is the correct answer to these questions. He says, I worship God in the Spirit, and I glory in Jesus Christ. And the whole rest of the chapter, other than those sections that talk about the false teachers, really tell us what the focus is. I have no confidence in the flesh. That's the negative. Anything that has to do with this temporal world, no way. All right? Then he goes on and says, I, I press toward the mark. I, those things that were gained to me, I count but lost. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, etc. And then it goes down and says, our citizenship is in heaven, and so on. The whole focus is a heavenly focus. One of the things that you should, that you should do in terms of friendships... Now, when I'm talking about friendships, I am not referring to the opportunities we have to have personal relationships with, with people that we are influencing. All right? In other words, it's legitimate, it's right to have lifestyle evangelism, to have neighbors who are unbelievers and go to a ball game with them and, and fellowship with them in the sense, as much as you can, that share the things that you share in common as much as you can because you want to win that guy to Jesus Christ. And it should not be a, an ulterior motive type of thing, but you should genuinely love him. And there's nothing wrong with that kind of thing. I, I hasten to say that because so many people can take this wrong when I'm gonna, what, what I'm going to say next. So understand that. It's perfectly legitimate for you to have associates and friends who are unbelievers in order to try to win them to Jesus Christ. 
But when I'm talking about a friendship now, I'm talking about the kind of friendship where there is mutual influence, where you may be influencing them, but they're influencing you, where there's that, that give and take kind of friendship where, where some of your values are being shaped by the person with whom you're a friend. And you want to avoid, like a plague, a relationship like that with a person that has any one of three, these three characteristics. If they're worshiping something other than God, light cannot have fellowship with darkness. And unfortunately, there's a lot of Christians who, who, who gather together and begin to influence each other and they, they worship other things other than God. They worship what they want. They worship what they desire. The things that they, that they like, that's what they worship. And you get together, and what's the conversation? What I want, me, my, mine. Self-centered world. If you think that doesn't happen among Christians, remember that when Paul was writing the Philippian church, he said, I have no man like-minded, who will naturally care for your estate. For all seek their own and not the things of Jesus Christ. He was talking about Christian people, talking about his Christian associates. He said, I have no man like-minded, that is, like Timothy. Timothy was the exception. He said that Timothy will naturally care for your estate. He's a man who cares. He's a man who is unselfish. We live in a selfish world and everybody's looking to line their own pockets. It's difficult to find people who genuinely care for, for others as a result. We don't want to be put out. We, we've got our own life to live. We don't want anybody to invade our privacy. We've got a million and one excuses. But when you've got people like that, they influence other people. And it becomes a... It becomes a a multiple factor so that there's a multiplication of this poison within a fellowship. You have to be very, very careful that you, that when your ability to influence that person stops and he begins to influence you, that you bail out. But secondly, they glory in what they ought to be ashamed of. The thing that, I, I'm, I'm just I'm so concerned today about the things that excite Christian people. They can get so excited about things that are so passing and so temporal. And we're all caught up in it. We live in a world of, of, of Madison Avenue uh, 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 advertising where, where they, they, they grab your attention and they, they, want, they want to get you to think a certain way. They want to get you to think that you, you just have to have their product, this sort of thing. And people get excited about those things. But more than that, people get excited about the things that they positively should be ashamed of. It used to be that a lot of, a lot of the activities which are done among Christian people today openly used to be done by the real carnal ones in secret. They would never admit that they were involved in some of the things they're involved in. Now, it's popular for Christian guys to, 
to, to brag about their extracurricular sex life. It's popular for Christian guys to talk about their, their partying and, and their, 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 their boozing it up and their even taking drugs. You'd be shocked. And it's the in thing among good people, you know? No longer is it a hidden thing. They get excited about the things they ought to be ashamed of. They're, the ability to blush is a good thing. And Americans have lost their ability to blush on most everything. We've seen it all. We see it displayed in the movies and on television, things like that. And we get to the place that we, we can no longer blush. That's tragic. We ought to be ashamed of those things. To even entertain the thought about those things should bring, bring a, a, a blush to our face. We ought to learn to get embarrassed all over again. And, uh, you know, I, I remember a whole lot of stories of Christians that got themselves in, in, into situations um, and, and got terribly embarrassed, you know, and flustered and didn't know what to do and all of that. And those stories doesn't even do any good to tell them anymore because people would say, what's he talking about? What's so bad about that? And the, the, the day has changed. I got some old illustration books. You'd really get a chuckle out of them because some, some of the things that they're illustrating is using something to illustrate evil. It's something that is so commonplace today, there, there's no way that people would think of that as being evil. I don't think the evil has changed. It's we that's changed. The things we ought to be ashamed of, we're no longer ashamed of. And then, this world is the limit of our horizon. You just think about your conversations, of all the conversations you had last week that you can remember. How much of what you said and what you heard from your Christian friends how much of it was really focused on eternity? How much of it was really exalting to the Lord? How much of it was really showing that you're a citizen of heaven, not a citizen of earth? You say, wow, boy, you use that kind of a measuring stick, I'm in trouble. Probably all of us are. And maybe it's a little convicting. But I think that maybe we ought to take a look at that. I'm not talking about going around with your head in the clouds and talking in great spiritual tones. Uh, that's phony. It's fakey. But it's amazing when things happen, how our first instinct, our first thought, is to think of that thing in terms of an earthly perspective rather than a heavenly. Now, I'll tell you something. God is faithful. God is faithful. He wants you to have a heavenly perspective. Guess what? He's going to do that. He's going to accomplish that in your life. If he has to give you great riches and let you wallow him until you drown, until one day you look at your life and realize how empty it is, and you suddenly look up and begin to get an eternal perspective, he may do that. 
He may take it all away from you. He may cause you today to lose that deal that is so important to you. Just so that you will forget about the things that are unimportant and put your trust in Him. You're really not in bad shape when you're placed in God's hands, stripped of anything, everything else. That's a, a pretty good place to be when you're standing on the rock. And I just wonder, you know, where is your security? Where is the thing that, what is the thing that you look to for your security? You know, we, we probably have the, the world's greatest joke, you know, in terms of security when they talk about social security. You know, I mean, how much security can a person have when he begins to uh, read the page? I mean, you don't have to read very much to pick up on the fact that the social security system is one of the most insecure things that there is in the world, you know? The money, the bucks just aren't there. Somehow or another, it's not, it, it, the system isn't working. Uh, they didn't quite have enough uh, people making money to, to pay the ones that worked in the last generation. And, and they're talking about all of this, and the, the big headlines, Social Security system is bankrupt, and all of this. And they keep dumping up more money into it, which is another crazy thing, because it's money we don't have, you know? And, and it goes on and on and on, so they start raising all of it. The latest, the latest thing is that, you know, they start, these, these economists start looking around for some way they can get a few more bucks somewhere to try to save the system. They just recently, you know, the, the uh, missionaries have been exempt from the Social Security system uh, just from day one, from the beginning of the Social Security system. They've been exempt. And uh, it's one reason that the missionaries can go out on the mission field uh, and, and serve the Lord and uh, the mission generally has some kind of retirement package or something for them. It's not much, but uh, they, they generally, uh, when in their old age, are cared for. Their mission feels a responsibility for them and so on. So they have not, done this, not been a part of the Social Security system. Well, the latest thing is that all missionaries that are, that are serving on uh, U.S. soil uh, are going to have to now, play, now pay Social Security. And what it basically means is a cut in the, in the, the money that all the missionaries uh, that are stateside are going to get, unless the churches pitch in and help. But you see, boy, they, they want to save the system. So they skin anybody they can get. Anybody that's not in it, they got to get in it. And you can imagine the, the tremendous security when they tell you, okay, you opted not to go with the Social Security system, but we're going to make you get into it now anyway because it's more secure than ever, of course. You know, <laughs> back in the days when, when they made, gave them an option as to whether it be a part of the Social Security system or not, everybody thought it was pretty secure. Do you know the Social Security system is really an illustration of what the whole system is? There is no security in wealth and riches. That's not where you find your security. Where is your security? Your security is to be in God. Now I look at a man like George Mueller as an example. And I compare him to even wealthy people today. Which would you rather be? 
a guy who knew how to talk to God and get anything that he needed at the moment, or a guy who has a, a thick wallet and a nice bank account. In the long run, George Mueller was miles ahead of those that had all kinds of wealth and riches. Our focus is wrong, folks. God wants us to think in terms of, of what really is vital and what really is important. In any event, someone said is the wing of the soul by which it flies to what it loves. Desire is the wing of the soul by which it flies to what it loves. As an eagle to a carcass or as a dog to his vomit, desire is the wing of the soul by which it flies to what it loves. 24th chapter of Matthew and verse 28. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. By the way, that's a good verse for business. You know, got any vultures out there? Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Look at uh, Job 39. Job 39, verse 27. Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up or makes his nest on high on the cliffs he dwells and lodges upon the rocky crag and inaccessible place? From there he spies out food. His eyes see it from afar. His young ones also suck up blood. And where the slain are, there is he. You know, there's a lesson in that. If eating dead flesh is what you like, then you fly to it. Depends on where your desires are. That's why it's so important that we control our appetites. We control not only what we actually do, but we control what we want. You know, the, the um, old French proverb says this, that when you want something, you must also want what it brings. Most people don't like to think of the consequences of their desires. When you want something, then you also must want what it brings. Over in uh, Proverbs 26, verse 11, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. He desires it and he's, it's like a magnet. He's drawn to it. And the thing that, the, that God's Word tells us repeatedly is that 
the desire of, of God's righteousness. This is the thing that we ought to desire more than life itself. We ought to desire the righteousness of God in our life. We, we, we want, God wants us to be men who, who earnestly crave after righteousness. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after what? Righteousness. For they shall be filled. When was the last time, honestly, in the scale of your values, when was the last time that you sat and, and, and just communed with your own soul and, and, and talked about what you really desire and you decided that, that more than anything else in all the world, you desired to be like God? That you desired, desired His character to be seen in you? That you desired to be, to be a godly man? To be a, a man totally and wholly committed to God. To say like D.L. Moody did, the world is yet to see what God can do in and for and through a man that is totally committed to Him. By God's grace, I will be that man. See, most of us have so many ulterior things, so many other things pressing in, so many other things to occupy our mind. We very seldom have a heart that is longing after God. Is the heart, the heart, H-A-R-T, the stag, longs after the water brook. So my soul, David said, thirsteth after thee, my God. David said, my heart followeth hard after thee. My soul shall be satisfied when I see your likeness. See, the desire of the heart we, we just don't control our affections. We don't control what we desire. Psalm 10. Verse 17. O Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. The humble are those that are dependent. The humble are those that have no resources of their own. They have to depend upon God for their resource. What a great place to be in. Alright? O Lord, Thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt strengthen their heart. Thou wilt incline Thine ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed. The man who is of the earth may cause... The man of the, who is of the earth may cause terror no more. A desire for God. A desire for God's righteousness. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 26. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit because He intercedes for saints according to to the will of God. 
God's own spirit can take the, the earnest and proper desire of your heart and translate it into the ear of God in such a way that even though you don't quite know how to pray, when you turn your heart to Him, He is able to give you the thing that will satisfy you the most. The man who desires God more than anything else is a man that cries out like the psalmist did in Psalm 73, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee I desire nothing on earth. You know, that's a fascinating psalm because you, you, have, a, you have a sequence here where a guy is, is up to, he's had it up to here with people who have tromped all over everybody and made a success of life, and he hasn't. All right? He looks around and he sees that, that try as he might, uh, it, it seems like the most minor little thing puts a stumbling block in front of him and, and everything goes sour. And then he looks at a wicked man, a man who is, who is totally wicked, and he says, that guy gets away with murder until he goes into the house of the Lord. And in the house of the Lord, he sees a slaughter. Often, ever see a, a, a tabernacle, uh, a model of the tabernacle in the wilderness? Always kind of a nice thing to see. One of the things you see in the tabernacle in the wilderness is this, this nice, uh, when you see a model of it, you see this nice, shiny, brass altar at the entrance. And uh, the, it's always so beautiful, bright and shiny, and you get, you're so impressed. Usually they'll have a model like this with the roof off of it, so you can look down in it and you can see where the Holy of Holies is and the Ark of the Covenant and, and all of the rest. And you see that whole thing laid out. And right out there in front, they usually get some real shiny metal and they, boy, they've got that brazen altar out there. It's always so clean and shiny. Let me ask you, have you ever been to a slaughterhouse? That's what the altar looked like. Slaughterhouse. I mean, that's where they slew hundreds, even thousands of animals every day. Because every time an Israelite sinned, he had to come and offer sacrifice right there. And imagine what that thing looked like. I mean, you can imagine, if, if you've ever slaughtered anything, I mean, we used to, we used to uh, um, get live chickens and bring them home and wring their necks and dip them in hot water and pluck them and, you know, boy, those are fresh chickens, I'll tell you. You knew they were fresh. You didn't have to, it, it didn't say fresh on the outside, but you didn't have to wonder. They were fresh. And we used to, we used to do that all the time. And what a mess. There's no way you can clean up after a mess like that. The altar was a slaughterhouse. Imagine what it looked like. He looked there and all of a sudden something hit him. That's the end of the wicked. That's how they end up. Because if the sacrifice is not made for their sin, then they have to pay for their own sin. And they'll be slaughtered. And when he goes into that, into that tabernacle and sees that, he's reminded not to envy the wicked because of the end of the wicked. How many times have you heard me say that? Don't 
envy the wicked. Teach your kids not to envy the wicked. How can you teach them not to envy the wicked? Teach them the end of the wicked. They think something's cute. Show them how people like that end up. I think kids today need to, need to have a, a tour, have their dad take them on a tour of a drug rehabilitation center. Let them sit for an hour and watch a guy withdrawing from, from a heroin habit or a cocaine habit. Need to see it and hear the screams. Watch the guy vomit all over the floor. They need to see that. Because we live in a day where it's cute to partake in these drugs. They don't see the other side. It's high time somebody start educating kids. They get a different education at school. There's a way to educate them beyond that education. I believe that it's so important that they see the end of the wicked. See how it turns out. But it's at that point when he finally understands life in that perspective, in a raw slice of life at that, that he says, Whom have I in heaven but thee? There's none that I desire on earth beside thee. There is nothing important in life but God. And if you have God, you have everything. People are so concerned about getting this and getting that and getting the other thing in life. If you put even a quarter of the energy into, into knowing God as He really is, high and lifted up, in all of His glory and beauty and majesty and holiness, if you put half that effort into the thing, in, into that, that you put into making money or making a sale, Boy, you'd be dynamic. The trouble is, we give God kind of the leftovers. We, we, we tip Him with our, with our money. We, we, we uh, uh, give Him the leftovers of our time. We give Him the leftovers of our, of our heart's devotion. If I've got anything left at the end of the day, I'll kind of offer it up to the Lord. God always demanded from the people of Israel the first fruits. They brought the first fruits to God. They, when the people of Israel offered, they offered before they counted the cost. They went out and they harvested the field. The first day of harvest, they came in and they gave it to God. Some people, you see, might reason, uh, like up in Canada, they, they had the, the second day of harvest one year. Um, it was a bumper crop of oats. And uh, they put them in stooks. They call them stooks up there, shocks down here. But they put them up in stooks. And uh, that night, they were ready, you know, to haul them to the barn the next day. And that night, they had a snowstorm. And they lost the whole harvest because it never did dry out so they could put it away. And uh, some might reason, you see, that, that if they were to gather into the barn the first day's fruit and give that to God, 
What if it snowed? <laughs> what if they lost the rest of the harvest? God will have his and I won't have anything. So they say, no, no, no. I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to gather it all in the harvest. I'm going I'm to count up all my bills. And at the end of the time, I'll decide how much I'm going to get, how much God is going to get. And when they did that, God rebuked them. He says, you want to know? You want to know why you've lost harvest after harvest after harvest? I'll tell you why. Because you haven't been giving me the first fruits. You've got to learn the principle of the first fruits. And you've got to understand and know that God will God uses giving as a means to get people with their proper focus. He desires for people to come to the place where the wealth, the riches, those things just really aren't important. You remember how, how it was how it was when you had your first girlfriend, you know, and you had that prized nickel in your pocket. Now the 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 way you could tell whether you were really in love or not was if you took that nickel out and bought her an ice cream cone. Most of you regretted it afterward, but nevertheless, you know, I mean, it was a test of love and loyalty. Instead of buying something for yourself, you gave it away. And you gave it away, and you were delighted to do it. In fact, you were excited to do it. Why? Because you loved her. How much do we love the Lord? Boy, what a test. Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah chapter 26. Verses 8 and 9. Indeed, while following the way of thy judgments, O Lord, we have waited for thee eagerly. Thy name is even thy memory is the desire of our souls. It's what we long for. It's what we hunger for. At night, my soul longs for thee. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks thee diligently. And when the earth experiences thy judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Though the wicked is shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness. He does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. What a contrast. On one side is the righteous man who desires righteousness and the wicked who never learns righteousness. When God pours his favor upon a people you will either learn righteousness or you will not learn righteousness. When God gives you favor, it's because he wants you to learn righteousness. But if you've got a wicked heart, you're not going to learn righteousness. God wants you to desire him. So the desire of the righteous is good because it's God's work. And it's centered in him. And Christ really is our portion. You look at Psalm 4, you find a prophetic psalm 
concerning our Lord. Psalm 4, verses 6 and 7. Many are saying, Who will show us any good? Lift up the light of thy countenance upon us, O Lord. Thou hast put gladness in my heart. More than, than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for thou alone, O Lord, make me to dwell safely. Who will show us any good? It's only our Lord who can do that. If you go with me over to Romans 14, Romans 14, and verses 8 and 9, it says, For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. A lot of people think in terms of the fact that Christ died. Why did he die? Because he died for our sins, right? There's far more to it than that. Christ died so that he might be Lord over your life. He died so that he might be Lord. So that he might have his rightful place that he might be king, that he might be boss of your life. The big question is, did he die in vain? He didn't die so that, so that you could continue to live unto yourself. Whether you live, you live unto the Lord. See, living is great when he's Lord because it's, it's fitting into God's plan. It's fulfilling the purpose that God had from the very beginning when he made man. We're having fellowship with God. If you die, dying's not so bad either. He's Lord both of the dead and the living. It doesn't make any difference. Alive or dead, Paul could go about his ministry not afraid of death. If death came in a moment of time, Christ would be Lord in death, even as he's Lord in life. He is Lord, you know. He's not, he's not asking for your vote. He is Lord. He's not running for office. It's a matter of whether or not you'll recognize that he's Lord. Because if you don't, you'll be made to bow ultimately. But you'll lose. You'll lose. Anybody thinks there's no loss? You've got to read again all of the passages concerning the judgment seat of Christ. There is loss, beloved friend. And you're going to have an eternity to regret not allowing Christ to have his rightful place in your life. You know, you're so concerned about your comforts. So concerned that you have a comfortable life and everything be fine. Well, you know, 
Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man had not where to lay, the, lay his head. Let me ask you, do you think Christ has got any comforts now? You bet. He gave up earthly comforts in order to, to save us. And yet, he couldn't be better off than he is now. He's at the right hand of the Father. And that's forever. And forever. And forever. And people today are thinking so much in terms of this little piece called time. Believe me, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. We've got to live in terms of eternity. Lay up not for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves break through and steal, but rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and thieves cannot break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Pretty tough stuff, isn't it? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Lord, won't you help us to seek after righteousness. Help that the desire of our hearts will be for righteousness, for godliness. Help us, Lord, not to focus upon the things that are so temporary in this life. Help us, Lord, to be wise in everything, with everything that you give us. Lord, help us never to fall in love with it. Help us only to fall in love with you and we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Give us a good day at work today. Give us a witness and testimony. Help us to live with eternity's values in view, and we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good day, gentlemen.